What I wanted to do, though, is start off uh, with a quick video. So the clip I'm going to play uh, is just kind of a short clip from a musical, a musical that I have never seen. Actually, uh, my, my musical and my Broadway knowledge is pretty good, uh, but, but this is a gap in my knowledge. I hadn't really ever heard of this one before. I only found it because I was looking for this song. It's called Mame. Has anyone seen or heard of the musical Mame? Someone must have. I see hands, a couple of hands. It was completely off my radar. So I actually don't know, for the record, anything about the context of this song. I don't know why it's happening here. I don't know what's going on, especially in this scene. But I certainly heard the song before. I think as you listen, uh, the song will be familiar to many of you. But if you have or haven't, what I want you to do uh, while you're listening, while you're watching, is just to pay attention to the lyrics that are being sung, to what's being sung uh, as, uh, as in this case, uh, Lucille Ball uh, sings this song. Haul out the holly, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stockings, we may be rushing things, but deck the halls again now. For we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Candles in the window, carols at the spinet. Yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry, but Santa dear, we're in a hurry. So climb down the chimney, turn on the brightest string of lights I've ever seen. Slice up the fruitcake It's time we hung some tinsel On that evergreen bough For I've grown a little leaner Grown a little colder Grown a little sadder Grown a little older And I need a little angel Sitting on my shoulder Need a little Christmas now Okay, so many of you, I think, know that song, have heard that song on the radio. I think it's a song that, uh, that gets played a lot in Christmas playlists and these sorts of things. And it's a song that's always caught my attention whenever it's come on, because to me it's a little bit of a strange Christmas song. Something about it has always sort of stuck out uh, or, or, or felt out of place or caught in my mind in a different way, because unlike a lot of uh, radio Christmas music, there's a little bit of sadness buried in it, right? It's, it's a joyful song, but in some ways it's, it's, a, it's a mournful song. It's a fragile song. It, it starts right from the beginning. Haul out the holly, put up the tree before my spirits fall again. It's always struck me as this kind of uh, desperate clinging, a recognition that this lady's right on the edge, that she's in fact nearly over the edge. She's growing leaner and colder and sadder and older, but Christmas somehow might save her, might combat this decay, this sadness, uh, this death. Am I overthinking it? Am I, am I getting too heavy? Am I reading too much into it? Uh, let me say again, I've never seen the musical. I don't know what the context is for this song. But, but for years, when I've heard it on the radio, it's always sort of made me stop and listen uh, in a way that other Christmas songs haven't. Uh, because poking through the mistletoe and the holly and the candy canes is a sort of a fragility or a fear, a little desperation. She needs 
Christmas, right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry, but Santa dear, we're in a hurry. And, and you get the sense that, that consciously or unconsciously, the world understands that. That somehow in our hearts or our culture we have this feeling that we need Christmas. What other holiday has the sort of build-up in the year that Christmas does? Nothing even comes close. People are decorated weeks, even months ahead of time. There's a phrase that's been around since the 80s and it gets used more and more. It's called uh, Christmas creep. This idea that Christmas decorations and sales and things come out a little earlier and a little earlier every single year, and, and especially the trend of retailers like Walmart or Costco or JCPenney to, to start this Christmas push for the Christmas sale earlier and earlier, or for radio stations to play Christmas music earlier and earlier. It used to be beginning of December and then it pushed into November, and now many places already in October are starting to push these things and get you thinking about Christmas. Advent is only starting. But the world is already in full Christmas swing. And yet, if you look on our stage, there's nothing. Nothing except for the candles in front here. And I can imagine that some of you might have walked in and been a little bit disappointed by that. Felt like something was missing, like something was off. And this is as good a time as any for me to mention that we're looking for a stage decorator. The worship committee's looking for someone to help out. But this was intentional. Every year we put a fair bit of thought into how to approach Advent, into the theme or the angle that we'll take to kind of build up to Christmas time. And typically we sort of go for the typical uh, a warm and fuzzy, sort of heartwarming themes. We talk about peace and hope and joy and love, and the stage is lit up and decorated. From the beginning of December, we've done that in many years past, uh, and let me be totally clear, we will do it again in the future. I love doing those Advent series. I love that feeling. We at home, we have our tree up and we're listening to Christmas music. I have no problem with that. I love it, and it's an important part of Christmas. But for this year, for this series, as we processed as a worship committee, the words that came to mind, the direction that we thought about was to take some time to recognize the darkness and, and the fear and the brokenness and the uncertainty of the season of Christmas. And we wanted to do that for a few reasons. First is that it's true to what we see in the Bible. The characters in the nativity story, as well as those surrounding it or leading up to it or prophesying about it, those stories are not all happy. There is pain and there is death and there is fear in the Advent story. Babies are killed by a jealous king. Mary is at risk of being disowned or hurt by her family and community because of her pregnancy out of wedlock. People are displaced and put in tough situations left and right. And so to pretend that it was all calm and peaceful would be a twisting of the truth of what happened at Christmas. And the second, maybe more practical reason, is this. As much as this is a joyful season... For many of us, in different ways, Christmas can be a really tough time. It's a time when pain, in all its forms, can become more acute or more intense or more focused. It's a time of year when the loss of loved ones can sting, especially when broken relationships come up, when family troubles rear their heads. 
and when the stress of responsibility can be overwhelming. Christmas can be a really hard and dark time of year. And we as a church do a disservice if we gloss over this with Christmas carols and candy canes and pretend that everything is wonderful all the time. And so we recognize also that the Christmas story speaks directly to these things, to these struggles, because we see the struggle and empathize with it in the lives of the people who lived the Christmas story, and also because Christmas is the beginning of the ultimate answer to those hurts and struggles as well, the ultimate amen and ultimate victory over those things. And so Christmas and Advent is a good time, we thought, to talk about those feelings. And so we decided to take that journey, and what I did is I went to a book on Advent uh, by an Episcopalian priest. Her name is Fleming Rutledge. Uh, She's a leading theologian and speaker. She's considered to be a very sort of important voice in modern theology. And she, in this book, introduced me to a version of Advent that was uh, very strange to me, kind of alien to me, but it sort of captured me. And my prayer is, is that as we walk through this season, this Advent... Uh, that is very much like the Advent that was celebrated by our forefathers 500 years ago, uh, will also resonate with you in the way it's resonated with me. It's something that the Episcopalian Church uh, does very well. Uh, They recognize the darkness around Christmas. They recognize the tension or the dissonance uh, in the lead-up to Christmas. In fact, in many Episcopalian churches uh, and in their homes, they do not decorate uh, until Christmas Day itself. Uh, In her book, Rutledge asks her mother her opinion on why that was. Why didn't we decorate? And her mother replies simply, I think Christmas should come in a burst. And so the four weeks that we work up to Christmas will serve as the slow build to the grand burst that is the incarnation, that is God made human, that represents the answer to the questions that this season can bring up. Rutledge argues that the way Advent is celebrated in society and even in many churches is the result of North Americans generally not being very good at waiting for things. And more than that, falling prey to the human tendency to cover up unease and tension and fear with sentimentality and denial and loud music and pretty lights. And she quotes the poet, W.H. Auden, who grabs onto a picture of people in a cheery bar with decorations and loud music and calls it out as a way to avoid our own vulnerability and anxiety or fragileness or humanness, Auden says this, Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home lest we should see where we are. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. So Rutledge would say that the spirit of Advent is to look into the heart of darkness, to in fact strip away the sentimentality and the comfort of the season, to step away from the hot chocolate and the candy canes and to recognize the evil in our world, the death in our world, the wrong and the unfair and the broken and the sin, to sit in the waiting, to sit in the silence, to recognize that despite all the hustle and bustle, that on our own, 
Really, we are all children lost in a haunted wood. And so the story of Advent and the tone of Advent shifts from kind of an extended birthday party towards an unflinching look at what is not right all around us and what our response is to that as Christians toward a recognition of our need for help and of our need for a Savior. Advent becomes about stories like this. In 2017, Yemen, the poorest country in the Arab world, was suffering from a prolonged crisis as a result of civil war. The government and all its agencies had ceased to operate. All services, medical care, sanitation, food supply, factories, airports, seaports, bridges, everything was collapsing. Parents were desperate as their children began to die of cholera, a disease that is easily treated in the developed world. A man waited outside a primitive cholera clinic with his son, hanging by a thread. Even if he recovered, his father had no money to return home. Another poor man had fled from bombing with his wife and six children from one side of Yemen to the other. He said, the war haunts us in all directions. And a third man, a Yemeni soldier, had not been paid anything for eight months and his six-year-old daughter was in dire condition from malnutrition, waiting by her side in a clinic. He said, we're just waiting for doom or a breakthrough from heaven. That is the Advent situation. That's where we find ourselves. Doom on one side and breakthrough on the other. Advent becomes about Desmond Tutu, the Bishop of Johannesburg, fighting against the racial policies of South Africa. Where at an airport news conference, he declared that he was not at all worried about his passport being confiscated again, as it had in the past. Having one's passport taken away was not the worst thing that could happen to a Christian. Even being killed, Desmond said, was not the worst thing. For me, the bishop said, one of the worst things would be if I woke up one day and said to people, I think the apartheid is not so bad. That would be worse than death. Advent is about speaking truth to the evil in our world. It is about being a voice for those who have no voice. Advent becomes about feelings like this. C.S. Lewis said after the death of his wife in his unbelievably vulnerable and self-aware book, A Grief Observed, he wrote, Where is God? When you are happy and you turn to him with gratitude or praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slamming in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. Advent is about grappling with the confusion of an all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving God who, when we need him most, sometimes seems to be gone. Advent becomes about a three-year-old boy stabbed multiple times, clinging to life until finally being taken off life support last month in Winnipeg. Advent becomes about the five-year-old girl who passed away on Friday in McCreary from a house fire. It's about staring the chaos and the evil of the world directly in the eye. And slowly that line from the poem that I sent in the bulletin email becomes more and more real, speaks more and more to our time and to our situation. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And with this truth in front of us, our scriptural focus for Advent begins to shift too. 
shift away from stories about wise men and gifts and drummer boys and animals in the stable to lonely voices crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist, Malachi, Isaiah, prophets and holy men who stood on the fringes of society speaking truth to the fallen nature of humanity, recognizing evil and destruction and chaos and calling desperately for the heavens to come down. Recognizing that nothing short of divine intervention could ever fix the situation we find ourselves in. And our gaze shifts too from past to the future. Advent isn't so much about looking back. Advent in the tradition that's explored here was primarily a forward-facing event. Advent was a time of expectation for Jesus' return. It's a desperate cry for things to be truly made right. A claiming of the future promise the total and complete fulfillment of the journey that was started at Christmas. And so that brings us to our passage of Scripture for today, Matthew 25. And I'll encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. It's important to note the context of this passage. Jesus is towards the end of his ministry here on earth. He's in Jerusalem. He's just left the temple. And he is angry. He has stared into the heart of darkness. He has seen the wickedness of man. He has seen the wickedness of the religious leaders. And he is looking towards and past his own death and seeing that things are going to get worse in all sorts of ways before they get better. Recognizing that even though he's going to win the war in the next week, the battle itself is far from over. The two chapters leading up to Matthew 25 are some of the hardest to digest pieces of Scripture in the Bible for me. Jesus speaks in a brutally honest way about what is to come and about the moral decay that he sees all around him. In Matthew 23, we find the seven woes. These are kind of, you could call them the anti-beatitudes. He says, and I'm very much paraphrasing here, but woe to you, you hypocrites who shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces, who convert people and twist them to your version of religion, who swear by the temple, who give out of obligation instead of from their hearts, who focus on outside appearance instead of inner value, who are whitewashed tombs. Just a devastating thing to say about someone even today, but more so in that culture. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside, You are literally full of death. And afterwards he leaves, and the disciples are maybe trying to change the mood a little bit, I could imagine, so they comment on the beauty of the temple, and Jesus says, truly I tell you that not one stone will be left here on another. Everything will be thrown down. And the disciples, who must be a little bit bewildered or frightened, they ask Jesus, what's going to happen at the end of the age? Maybe they're hoping for some comfort or some reassurance. Things are going to get better. I've got it under control. Let's talk about heaven for a bit. But the answer is anything but comforting. Jesus launches into a chapter-long apocalyptic warning. War and violence and famine and earthquakes. And you, the disciples, will be handed over and persecuted and put to death and hated. And people will turn away from the faith. And false prophets will appear. And love will grow cold. And how dreadful it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers as people flee to the mountains to escape evil. But in the midst of all this, sort of sandwiched in the middle Of all this death and destruction in verse 13 in chapter 24, there's a sliver of hope. Those who stand firm to the end will be saved. And after this, he goes on to tell the last set of parables that he will tell before he is crucified. 
He says, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven will be like? Here is what it will be like. And the first parable, he says, we're not going to get into today, although it could have worked almost as well. It's the story of servants who keep up a house while their master is gone. They believe he's coming back, and so they keep working. Well, the wise ones do. Anyway, they continue to do what they are called to do, even though the only reason they have for doing it is away, and it's not clear when he's coming back. And the second story, you've already heard once this morning, but I'll read it again here. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So, many scholars and commentators and people who are sort of paid to pick through the Bible with a fine-tooth comb, they get caught up in a lot of the interesting details of this story or the confusing pieces of this story. And there are a lot of interesting uh, and confusing things about this story. Uh, We assume that Jesus is the bridegroom here, but then why, when so many other places were referred to as the bride, are we suddenly bridesmaids uh, in this story? And, 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 And why... Do these five with oil not share with the ones who didn't have? That seems like a very anti-Christian thing to do. And why do they fall asleep? What's the significance, the spiritual significance of them falling asleep? And what does it mean that there are ten of them? And what kind of lamp oil salesman is around that these ladies could go out at midnight and get oil? And, And what of the five ladies who didn't keep oil in their lamps? Is there any hope for them? Are they lost at this point? But I'm going to argue that with this parable, you can very easily miss the message by overthinking it. The message here is simple. Jesus is coming back, and we are called to wait hopefully and allow that hope to change our lives in practical ways, to be prepared. We are called to maintain hope in the dark night, to keep our lights burning even as the wait stretches on longer than we had imagined. It's amazing to me, just a side note here, how often it happens to be true that that you guys preach my sermon before I ever get up here. Uh, and in sharing time again, um, Grace, you especially there, the, the idea that God is the same in the darkness that he is in the light, that could have been a subtitle uh, for the sermon. It's a beautiful thing, but we're called to believe that. We're called to stand there in the dark with our lamps out and go, we don't know when he's coming. We don't know totally what's going on, but we're ready. We don't know what's holding the bridegroom up. If it were up to us, this would be the right time for him to come, but he isn't coming. And so we stay ready. One thing that's reassuring to me here in this parable is that nobody was in the wrong for taking a nap. Both the wise and the foolish slept. We don't have to spend our entire lives eating standing up one foot out the door. 
we can have a life here and we can rest and we can have comfort and we can close our eyes now and then. But let's make sure we keep our lamps trimmed and a good supply of oil on hand. To live lives that mean that when Jesus returns, we don't have to quickly run off and fill our lamps up because they're full and they're trimmed. Despite the night, despite the uncertainty, despite the delay. And maybe a good example of this actually is our first responders. We have many first responders in this congregation who have served here uh, as first responders or firefighters in this community uh, or in other communities. And most of us have been in the room with a first responder uh, when they've received a call. They drop everything and they go. They could be asleep, they could be heading to a meeting, they could be sitting down for a meal, but they go. That isn't to say that they spend their entire lives dressed in their firefighting gear with an oxygen mask on. That isn't to say that they live in the fire hall. It just means that they're ready. That they've structured their lives in such a way that they're ready for the call. They recognize the possibility that a call could come at any time and they're prepared to drop what they're doing in order to go to work. And it's basically invisible. You wouldn't necessarily even know it by watching them. Usually, it's not that they're behaving or acting in a way that's totally different or alien or obvious, but everything they do at some level is informed or shaped by the understanding that if that pager goes off, if that call comes, they're ready. So what does that mean for us spiritually? What does it mean to be good waiters or good watchers or good lamp holders? We're going to look over the next few weeks at the lives of people like John the Baptist and Isaiah and Mary and focus on answering that question a little more completely. To you today, I'll say, talk about it over lunch. I'm sure you already have ideas of what it looks like to be a good waiter, to be a good lamp holder. I'm curious to hear what you think. But for me, it's enough to close with this. The sermon started off heavy. I recognize that. But Advent is a dark time. The nights are long. And we've experienced loss and how things don't add up and don't fit together in all sorts of different ways and in all sorts of different contexts. You don't need me to tell you stories about that. All of us have things like that in our own lives. And so then, this is what we do. This is what Advent calls us to. We face the woods in the dark for what they are. We don't try to dress it up. We don't decide that it's not so bad after all. In fact, deciding that it's not so bad after all might be the worst thing we can do. It is bad. It's bad in the world. It's bad in our hearts. And the beauty and the wonder of Advent is that we stand here and we face the night and we acknowledge it and we light our lamps and we whisper to each other in the darkness that Jesus was born and that he died and that he rose again and that he's coming back, come hell or high water. Nothing that is possible can save us. No matter how much holly or tinsel we put up, the night is still the night, evil is still evil, death is still death. So we give up on possible things. This Advent, together we hold up our candles, our lamps, and we say, bring on the impossible. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.